Now, Francis wants us to open up to new things. Francis is the new thing. He's not new because he leads a corrupt curia. We've had corrupt cardinals and popes before. He's not new because he voices error. Popes have done that before. He's not new because many are not even sure if he's the pope or not. That has happened before. But this bishop in white is new because he's trying to destroy Catholicism. That has never happened before. St. Therese of Calcutta said, give until it hurts. Now, resist until it hurts. God is willing to part the seas for his people. Ladies and gentlemen, what you're about to see is an interview between myself and Father Maudsley. He is a priest who was ordained into the fraternity of St. Peter, has found himself in some controversy and um, that has to do a lot with his resistance to some of the COVID mandate stuff, um, his opinions that I believe are correct on the approach that the church needs to take with liturgy. Um, he has an astonishing life. We talked about so much in this interview, everything from his time being in solitary confinement in Burma, uh, you know, fighting for justice for persecuted peoples there before he was a priest, uh, his sort of interior conversion towards the Catholic priesthood, um, his love of the traditional Latin Mass, the wealth of the scriptures and what they show us about the traditional Latin Mass, the church's position on Judaism in the Jews, um, the bishop's response to the COVID lockdowns, the SSPX, true obedience, evolution, and more. We talked about absolutely everything. This is one of the greatest interviews I think I've ever had the pleasure of being a part of. Um, so I hope you enjoy that, and be sure to click the links in the description to this video to see um, where you can find Father Maudsley's work, because he is a priest. He has much more to say that you should be listening to than someone like me, and we should all support him, and all his books are available there, and you can support him in those various ways. Click the links in the description. It's very clear where you need to click to help Father Maudsley. Okay, enough of me talking. Enjoy the show. Good day, ladies and gentlemen. I have the pleasure of sitting down virtually across the pond with Father Maudsley, uh, who is a traditional Catholic priest with many interesting things to say about the Mass, the history of the Mass as seen in Scripture and tradition. Um, he does have some wonderful stories to tell us about trying to navigate the so-called pandemic as a traditional Catholic priest in, I believe it was Germany and Austria. We'll get to that. Um, he's the author of four books, which I'm just going to put on the screen here, just so we can all see them. Uh, you can see these are right here. If uh, you believed Moses and uh, crucifixion to creation, crushing Satan's head and Adam's deep sleep. Personally, I have read uh, a portion of Adam's deep sleep. I haven't finished it yet, um, but I can tell that it is a, a depth of scholarship. And it did remind me, Father, uh, maybe you've read the book, um, How Christ Said the First Mass. Yeah. by Father Meager. I was, yeah. uh, it had a lot of that sort of depth to it. There's so much, which we'll get into, but there's so much about the actual liturgy that was part of Christ's ministry, especially at the Last Supper, which you know, it turns into this uh, you know, almost stereotypical painting. They're sitting around eating pita bread, and that's the Last Supper, but there's just so much more to it. Anyway, I don't want to talk too long because you'll explain it better than I do. So, Father, thank you for joining us. Pleasure. Okay, so... I know your background. Um, we did meet briefly at the Catholic Identity Conference, and we did share a cigar outside the hotel. I remember that. And um, 
you uh, had a, a history of, let's call it human rights advocacy or something like that, actually even spent time in prisons in Burma, if I'm not mistaken. Would you like to tell us kind of the Coles notes of who Father Maudsley is and how that came about and eventually how we, how you became a Catholic priest? Sure. I, I grew up in Lancashire, England. Um, my mother's Australian. Uh, very happy childhood where I had a Burmese friend since I was 13 and he would tell me about the injustice in his country in ways that neither of us could properly uh, process because we were so young. But it stuck with me and that is led me to going out to Burma when I was in my 20s, I was arrested. I've never called it human rights advocacy because even back then you can see there's something wrong with right. this whole system that's built on um, no foundation except what man asserts. The, the proper foundation for human dignity is that we're made in the image of God and that our Lord, the second person, the Trinity, took on human nature fully, which shows that human nature is capable of being united with the divinity. That's our destination. That's amazing. And so for the see the people in Burma um, being robbed of, of their goods by their government and crushed and the most cruel tortures um, the world doesn't make sense so long as this is happening anywhere. I know it's happened through all history and it's, it's happened pretty much everywhere, even in basements in Austria, the terrible things that a father is doing to imprisoning his own family for more than a decade. Mm -hmm. You know, the, these, if we don't deal with this question of evil, then basically I don't see how you can settle down to a peaceful life. However, that doesn't mean we need to be constantly combating evil. I think someone who's going to worship the living God is doing the very best thing they can to deal with the evil. It took me a few imprisonments to discover that. <laughs> a few imprisonments. So you were in prison in Burma, is that true? Yeah. Um, okay. And that was, I mean, you just sort of were standing up to the regime in your own way. Is that kind of the context? Right. And it did have these, um, if you will, intermediary political goals and mm -hmm. simply a, a matter of um, loving your neighbor who, who's suffering, but it was also a pursuit of this deeper truth of how can human beings be so cruel to each other? Where does evil come from? And it's, but it's not as if there's actually two um, kinds of people. It's, it's in all of us, which again, right. the Catholic teaching that we need to fight our own sin is mm. absolutely on the nose. That's where it begins. And it doesn't, end either you don't get past that phase that's a constant thing all our life but by fighting your own sin that will bring you into confrontation with evil in the world for example if you're fighting your cowardice you need to learn to to stand up to injustice for example as we saw the last three years well that's interesting you mentioned um having to confront the evil uh, as uh, as something formative on basically an understanding of how the world could even be right and how you could have peace in the world because that's one of the reasons why Canadian psychologist Jordan Peterson is so famous. You know, I, I, I have a love-hate with Peterson. I, I do have to admit that when I was reverting to the Catholic faith in 2014, 2015, providentially I did discover his lectures. I am here in southwestern Ontario and he taught at the University of Toronto, which is two and a half hours from me. Uh, so he was on public access television, things like that. So before he was famous, I was a Peterson fan, if that makes sense. I was before the bandwagon. But I did watch his lectures. He just taped himself in class. And obviously a lot of things he says are not reconcilable with Catholic tradition. A lot of the Jungian philosophy, although there are 
elements of truth and it is it does borderline on Gnosticism. However, one of the things that he does tease out, which I think people find so helpful, is dealing with the devil within, so to speak, and having to confront that, even just to have sanity. Um, and that quest for sanity, for example, did drive Chesterton towards the church, towards God in the first place. So that's a huge aspect of it. Now, were you um, were you raised as a Catholic, uh, nominally or faithfully or any, yeah. any of the sort? Um, my mother was a faithful Catholic and took us all as kids to church every Sunday. My brothers and I learned to serve the Mass when we were little. However, it was the Novus Ordo. And in our teenage years, my mom, she stopped coming to the Mass, hmm. stopped taking us. She said that when she was a girl, um, they were told, oh, the Mass will never change. Nobody can change the Mass. And she remembers always her great aunts, her three great aunts praying the Rosary, which she loved to do with them. When all the changes came in the 70s, it was totally disorientating for her. And then when a couple of calamities came in her life, she um, couldn't basically, she no longer had the mass to sustain her. Hmm. And, 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 but thanks be to God, although my mother had a very good death in 2014, but she came back to the faith in the last two years, back to the sacraments in the last six months. In the last six weeks, the rosary was never out of her hand um, and she received the last rites. So thanks be to God for all that. I don't think she would have enjoyed the pandemic because um, she would have seen that it was complete nonsense. Um, <laughs> yeah. So she had an escape there. Well, I'm living, I live in Canada, which was, uh... You know, Australia got all the headlines because, and I have a theory about that, we had the exact same rules. Like, if you actually looked at the legislation, it was the same thing. But um, I think it was a difference in seasons. So everyone was locked down at the same time here in the Northern Hemisphere. You know, the winter lockdowns, summer openings, that kind of thing. And um, whereas Australia was locking down when we were all open. I think that's, I think that one of that's honestly, I thought, I'm like, why is, we have people, we have pastors getting arrested. We have protests and clashes with police not that i'm saying that's a good thing i'm just saying that's happening but uh, everyone thought australia was the worst place in the world and i think partly it's just because they needed some news and when everybody else was uh, locked down it wasn't really news because everyone was going through it mm. um okay so maybe we should jump into there because you were ordained uh into the if i'm not mistaken you were ordained into the fraternity of the saint peter correct yeah so what made you decide to be a traditional catholic priest uh, rather than just a novus ordo catholic priest Thank you for watching the show. If I could just interrupt this wonderful conversation for just a moment here, please check the links out in the description for the TKR store. You can find there our sacred frankincense oil, which we've brought in straight from the Middle East. And you can also find our Lanolin balm. And these are just two of the products that we have so far. There is a special product or a special series of products coming soon. The goal here is to offer you things that you're looking to buy anyway, but you can buy them from somebody who has the same values as you. If you can't shop locally, at least you can, in a way, support people with similar values. Check the links in the description, the TKR store, it's easy to find. Now back to the show. Well, I felt a very clear call to the priesthood in 2005, which very much surprised me, but it was very clear. So <laughs> I set off on the Novus Ordo path because that's all that I knew and tried out a religious society and also a diocese but there were, I discovered corruption in the religious society after, after a year and a half. And within 24 hours, I'd 
got from Spain to Rome to confront them at the general house. And then I was back in London or 36 <laughs> hours. It was out of order. And then with the diocese, um, they, at the end, they said that I couldn't kneel to receive Holy Communion. And I just knew that it's, it's not going to work. It's not going to work. And at the same time, then I was discovering online about the traditional mass. Thanks a lot to Father Z. Um, and then <laughs> yeah. reading more and more about it. And then it, I'd attended a, a few traditional masses. And then it's like, no looking back, can't live without this. And yeah. that, that diocese in England had said to me, you will not be able to have formation in the traditional mass in this seminary. So I just, well, it's a non-starter. A lot of seminarians think that they can keep their head down for seven years. And once they're ordained, they'll, they're going to break out and do it. There's no way that's going to happen. They will have spent seven years learning how to submit to unjust orders. You can't just switch that off. And in well, fact, it gets harder and harder to stand out against the system the longer you've been complying with it. It's much easier when you've got nothing to lose. When you're a little fish, that's when you should resist the system. Hmm. And Or God gives an awakening to people sometimes who are in a position of influence and let, let them take that opportunity. But so long as we have an awareness that the system is corrupt, we shouldn't be complying with it. it it will only get harder to fix later yeah so, yeah i agree with, i agree with you when um when the institute of mask mandates here so i never i wore a mask maybe half a dozen times uh for reasons of i had to go to the dentist there was just no way they'd let me in and my benefits were going to run out and i needed to get my teeth cleaned um well, a hospital they wouldn't let you in there was no way they were i mean i think they'd probably sedate you and throw one on you you know if you didn't put one on they were very serious uh, but I never wore one at stores or anything like that. I only had a couple of confrontations. Um, was able to navigate through it. And um, and I remember speaking with some, you know, traditional Catholic friends and, and people I go to church with and stuff. And I would say, come on, guys, like, let's take them off. You know, I mean, if we all take them off, they can't make us all wear them. It's true. They showed that with the Freedom Convoy. As soon as there was enough of a stink, it's like, oh, I guess the science has changed. It's like, yeah, right. Yeah. Um, but they said, well, you know, I'm saving my strength for the big fight i'm saving my strength for and i said that's not how it works you know just a similar analogy i used to be a, a little bit of an amateur boxer you can't just not practice the, the 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 fundamentals and then say i'll be okay for the real fight you have to do everything up to the lead up yeah that's about the line in winter you know you, you practice during the winter so when the season comes you can fight yeah and and with the one thing i learned about burma is it really is no good waiting for the mass movement waiting for other people to act when your conscience stirs you, that's when you should act. And you yeah. don't know if you're going to be in one of the front runners or one of the crowd or one of the stragglers. It doesn't, doesn't matter. You do it when your conscience calls you. Um, but the, there's nothing more likely to inspire other people to stand up to tyranny than seeing other people do it. Yep. So you can't just whip people up and organize them. Just do what's right, and that will um, have its good knock-on effects and fruit. There is wisdom there you say as well, don't wait until, you know, the seminarians who try to wait until they're ordained to finally do something. The small fish idea of, of, of when you're when you're insignificant, so to speak, then do something. And I can relate to that. Um, you know, I, I'm 35 and I was beginning a teaching career. I was about seven years in. Here in Ontario, teaching is a very, actually similar to the UK. It's a, it's a desirable job. It's not like the sort of public school teaching in the States where it's very low pay. It's actually quite desirable good benefits, good summers off and all that sort of stuff. It's a really good family life thing. Spent a lot of money getting a degree to do it and all that kind of stuff. 
And then I realized in the first few years of teaching, you know, I was teaching in a Catholic school. There was heresy and nonsense. And I would, like you, I would, I'd write letters to the chancery or similar things and talk to the religious education formators and stuff and cause them headaches. And I basically realized at a certain point, I said, if I, if I stay in this, then one of two things is going to happen. I'm either going to become bitter and resentful and just hate my job, which is no good because I've got children to raise and a wife to keep happy. Um, on the other hand, if I bend the knee, then I'll have, you know, basically compromised with something I know to be wrong. And I, those two outcomes were just not desirable. So I made the decision to get out before I was 20 years in. And, you know, thankfully I'm young enough in the earliest part of my adulthood that I can transition to a new career. But if I had to wait 10 to 15 years, how much more difficult would it have been right. at that point? Yeah. 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 yeah I, I just, I look back at what I did in Burma and I don't believe I could do anything like that now. And unless <laughs> God really sent the circumstances, I mean, I picked a fight then because I was, I was ready for it, but now I'm 50. I don't, don't have the energy for that. And so the whole thing that's happening now in the church and with traditionalist custodians and Francis, although I think it's necessary to resist him and his evil, um, it's not a fight I picked. This is something that's come to us that pandemic and traditionalist custodians took away my ministry. They took Won't you, away yeah, you explain that for us because you were a priest. Now you must speak German, right? Um, I'm English Australian, but I was um, posted. I went to seminary in Germany because when you, so said, you, do, so you so you did to, learn German to join the fraternity or to, to say the traditional mass, there's not many options in the world for a seminary. Right. And uh, the fraternity are fantastic. I love them. And yeah. it's either go to Denton um, or in Nebraska or Vigratsbad yeah. in Bavaria. And I have German roots as well, uh, kind of. And uh, I've been so many times to America. I love America. I thought I got to get to know Europe. So I went there. And that's where you learned German. I'm still, um, still flailing after 10 years in German speaking countries. It's embarrassing. I, um, <laughs> theoretically I can get by, but. It's, so it's when a, you would offer mass though, would you do your homilies in German? Yeah. Um, <laughs> so there's, it wasn't so much an education for the faithful it was a penance for them. And, um, but they were all very kind. They say they can understand me. And in fact, the advantage of it was I spoke like a five-year-old. When ah, you give okay. your homilies like a five-year-old, it works. And, and in fact, one family asked their little children, like really, you know, the under tens of the three priests in one of the apostolates, whose homilies do you like the best out of our priests? Now, the other two priests are very, very well educated. They do great homilies, but they like mine the best because they could understand. Yeah. So, you know, I'm... Um... As you know, and most people who watch this know, I'm a Society of St. Pius X attendee and obviously a defender. And um, there's an expression, maybe it's similar into the fraternity, I don't know, but in the SSPX, um, you know, if you want to join the SSPX to see the world, you know, um, I know just here in our area, so we had a priest named Father McGilvery who's been on the SSPX podcast a bunch, very intelligent, very intelligent man. And he doesn't speak a lick of French. He did speak Spanish. He went to spend time in Mexico. Doesn't speak a lick of French went to the American seminary, get sent to English-speaking Canada, and then uh, they sent him to Quebec, to the heart of Quebec, where there's no English spoken at all, mm -hmm. and he has to learn how to teach in the school within like two months. And right. then they sent Father Perrault, who's from the south of France, to our chapel, where no one speaks French, and he didn't speak a lick of English. And it's just, 
you know, and it's amazing how fast they can learn. I mean, it's with a lot of Rosetta Stone and struggling through things and within four or five months they can hear confessions and things and um, mm -hmm. it seems to be a common experience amongst traditional priests. You know, one of the most diabolical attacks facing tradition is what Rome will may soon attempt to do with the seminaries. And I recall under John Paul II or Benedict, they said one of the criteria for their seminaries, the ideal that Rome wants, is that they be international. Mm -hmm. And look at the traditional seminaries, like for the Institute or the SSPX or the fraternity. They are so international. You have so many nations there. And there are so many languages spoken there that really the only way you are going to have a notice board that can handle it is by having it in Latin. Yep. So this is the wisdom of the church. It works. Um, and yet Rome is going to accuse the traditional seminaries of being giving an inadequate formation. They basically want um, an exegesis in the scriptures that denies the Catholic teaching. You know that the four senses of scripture is based on the literal sense. And the, yes. there's this mania for the historical critical method as if people never get beyond that now. They're not looking at the moral sense or the allegorical sense of the scriptures. It's just the papers coming out all stuck on the historical method, which is interesting and important because the literal sense is the foundation. But there's no point to it if you're not going to move on to learn the mysteries that God wants to reveal to us through the scriptures. And if you go to diocesan seminaries, what it's very rare that you get enough exposure to the fathers and the scholastics to, to be able to understand the Bible at all. And to mm -hmm. think that Rome are going to attack the Tradi seminaries, this is so grave, it's so serious. I hope, um, well, God will help us. God will help us. Um, it was interesting you mentioned not being able to understand the Bible. I know um, in the diocese I'm in, the fella who I believe he was or still is in charge of vocations for the diocese, I know for a fact that coming out of seminary, he had never read the book of Exodus. Um, you know, just hadn't read it. It was never part of the, or he was able to skirt by. And I mean, how can you understand, maybe this, maybe we can transition here to talking about what is the mass really, because how could you understand what the mass is if you don't understand the divinely revealed understanding of liter of, of, of liturgy in the it's, scriptures? It's a dozen times that Moses passes on to Pharaoh, what God told him and, and Aaron and Moses went to Pharaoh and said, we will be leaving this place in order to worship God. Yeah. And it's in the Benedictus as well. The reason for freedom, even political freedom or social freedom, any freedom is in order to worship God. Mm. And in fact, that's the criteria for maintaining your freedom. If you're not um, exercising yourself to worship God, you won't have freedom. And that comes through in Exodus, the, the, the whole of it and the whole building of the tabernacle which is a, a preparation for the incarnation, for Jesus coming among us, but also it's that place of encounter with God. And in the tabernacle, you have the menorah, the light, you have the bread of presence on the tables, um, the altar of incense, and all these things speak to Holy Mass, the bread for the Eucharist, the, the light, there has to be light on the altar at Mass, or it's mm -hmm. you shouldn't say the Mass. Um, because the first words of creation about the light, right? Which is Christ. He's the light of the world. Basically, yeah, I, Exodus. Can't live without it. So maybe let's discuss then, because in your books, which again, ladies and gentlemen, they are available in the, the show notes for this video. You can find there's a link for them there. And I suggest you read them. I know that I have Adam's Deep Sleep on Kindle, so you have Kindle version as well of your, of your books. Um, 
So we we talked briefly about the book by Father Meager called How Christ Said the First Mass. That one you can find re, you can find used copies for like $150, but you can also find it on archive.org. I read it electronically. Most of it. I haven't read the whole thing, but most of it. And one of the things I learned coming away from that book, and for a little context about it, it was a priest, a, Je- a Jesuit, a good Jesuit, during the time of St. Pius X, he wrote basically an exhaustive study on the liturgical history of both uh, of both the Jewish history leading into the Christian history. And he spent a lot of time in the Holy Land uh, going over the significance of all of the rites of worship of the Old Covenant um, and he was an expert in languages and things like that. He had many historical analogies and references in there that were that are just absolutely astonishing to explain it. Um, one of the things I took away reading that book is that uh, the Mass does not go back only 2,000 years. It goes back to the beginning of time. And this is one of the themes that you tease out. Could you explain that for us? Yeah. Um, in fact, the, the Mass is so rich that it would have been almost impossible to bring that about in a generation or let's say in the two or three years of Jesus' public ministry, training up his apostles, the idea of priesthood and sacrifice and altar, um, it needed a long, long, more than a cultural preparation. It's it's kind of deeper than that into our understanding of man and our search for God. So the, the whole Garden of Eden, in fact, is a setup that is originally a kind of an image of heaven, the paradise, but also within there, the centrality of that tree, which is the cross from which is life. Um, the, the, the man and the woman, the woman coming from the man's side as the church came from Jesus' side on the cross with his pierced heart and the blood and the water. In fact, before animals were sacrificed, before there was sin, before there was death, what was there to offer to God? but fruit. So although it's likely Adam fell on the first day, which is quite embarrassing for mankind, but <laughs> yes, it is. none of us are surprised, right? Who is sin. I'm, I find it bizarre that people blame Adam and Eve. And I think, well, if you can go one day without slipping, even in your <laughs> thoughts, then you can blame Adam and Eve. But in any case, there's fruit and the fruit, we talk of the flesh of the fruit, right? And the blood of the grape. If you squeeze it, you get the juice. Yeah. So even then you have this flesh and blood. Um, which could be offered to God as a sacrifice of thanksgiving and praise, if not for atonement before sin. Hmm. And then in the second generation, Abel is offering his lamb. And the lamb, well, got one here. Where is it? Um, it's, it's key to the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Look at his mouth of the, of the lamb. I don't know which way to point. I don't know if it's mirroring or not. Um, the lamb is silent uh, when it's being persecuted when it's been taken to slaughter, as Isaiah said, and that the deacon Philip interpreted. Um, and, and Cain offered grain. So again, you have grain and the lamb, which are both actually Eucharistic. They point to the Eucharistic, yeah. but Cain did something. It wasn't his goods that were unworthy. It was the manner of the offering or that he offered the second best stuff or something, something else. Um, but everything there is pointing to the Eucharist. In fact, it tells the Genesis 1, I think, tells us about Delium being in the land, which only occurs in yeah. one other place in the Bible. And it's um, about the manna from heaven in the book of Exodus, 
that had the taste of like sweet coriander, but the color of bdellium. And so again, mm-hmm. it's a connection with the, the Holy Eucharist that it's all laid up there in the land in the beginning. Um, so, and, and that's just looking at Genesis one, two, three, four, but all through with Abraham and Isaac or with Moses and the tabernacle or with Solomon and the temple, it's all a preparation for mass. The priesthood took a long time to develop the priesthood, you know, that with the high priesthood and the different families yeah. and the singers and the porters, like if you read Chronicles and it's talking again and again about the porters and their different orders and it names so many of them and the singers and Asa and these are essential to worship so holy mass is meant to be sung the whole of it is meant to be sung and a low mass is a concession to practicality but our hearts should be singing right because in the in heaven it's all everything is sung the angels sing that's how they communicate um so basically that the more we discover the roots of the mass in the Old Testament, I believe, then the more stable um, we are from the attacks on it. You know, in the Cultural Revolution in China in 68, they're trying to destroy the four olds. They're trying to destroy history. We see that with BLM. They want to destroy history, tear down the statues. Because once you've destroyed a people's sense of history, that you can manipulate them anywhere. If they don't know where they've come from, they can't possibly know where they're going. So our stability depends upon having tradition or reaching our goal depends upon having tradition you know who you are where you've come from where you're going um and th- that all goes back to well really jesus and mary on calvary and adam and eve are an explanation of what was happening on calvary because jesus and mary are really the center of it the real beginning and god wrote it so much of it like a preview heading up to that so that we could understand it is from God. Once we see how the Bible is written, that God tells us several times in the Bible, he's the one that sees things that are near and far, tells things in advance that men can't even dream of, so that we know it's from him. And that gives us such a peace that this couldn't be concocted by human beings. It's interesting. There's two things that I want to bring up there that, that, that made me think of important facts. First, Cain and Abel. Um, I gave a talk on the new mass last summer just to my chapel, and it was maybe 50, 100 people or something. And I was going through this work from Father Meager, but uh, I also was, I was really contemplating. And I don't know where I heard this idea. Personally, I think when you spend enough time in tradition and reading traditional theology uh, and just sort of get recalibrated, if that makes sense, I think you just start to understand the things without them having to be explained to you. Um, I don't. I never really heard this idea of Cain and Abel that I'm going to explain in a second here anywhere else. It's not. This not to say it's my novel idea. I think it's just a traditional thing that's imbibed once you understand truly that the mass is a sacrifice. You can't see the scriptures apart from that lens. And when I saw, when I was reading through uh, the story of Cain and Abel, I realized you're exactly correct. It's not that Cain didn't offer a technically valid sacrifice. It's that he offered an unworthy sacrifice. Yeah. And there's an in, there's a, there was a, a, a metaphysical reason. There was a interior reason. So, to me, um, validity is not enough. Mm-hmm. Validity is a very low bar. I mean, it's very simple. The priest says a few words with proper intention. Very easy to manifest that over the the uh, over the over the matter, and you have a valid consecration of the Eucharist. Saint Thomas Aquinas talks about the example of 
a priest consecrating a whole bakery, you know, be inadvisable, but technically could be valid. And um, that's not, the validity is the low bar. Everything that surrounds the sacrifice, even if the thing is valid, can, in my opinion, maybe you can elaborate on this, in a sense, kind of make or break whether God accepts that or not. So when people say, you know, what's the issue with going to the Novus Ordo? Okay, technically a priest performs a valid consecration, assuming the certain uh, the certain parts of the of his intention, form, and matter, et cetera, are there. But there's so much more to it than that. And you know, maybe I'm reaching here, but is there something to be said about that? Absolutely right. And validity is not. Um, well, love wants a lot more than validity. If we love God, we cannot be satisfied with validity. Although it, we would be horrified not to have that. Um, right. It's it's certainly not enough and you know we're told in the book of wisdom that cain perished he went to hell it's in the context of salvation he went to hell he he was sorrowful after the murder of abel not because of what he had done um but out of self-pity he murdered his brother because his brother's sacrifice was better now first this is about the jews crucifying jesus their brother mm -hmm. whose sacrifice is better He's the Lamb of God, the Shepherd, but it's become now about w within the church, the corrupt hierarchy, Sanhedrin, trying to put the traditional sacrifice to death. I think Cain is definitely all about the Novus Ordo. Um, and it's strange when you have discussed something with diehard Novus Ordo people, it's not like we're accusing them of anything. We're talking about the difference of the rights, and yes. yet they take it as a personal accusation. Um, and they say, oh, you think you're better than us? I said, well, no, we never entered my head. I think the traditional mass is infinitely better than the Novus Ordo. There are so many prayers in the traditional mass before the consecration about asking God to accept what we're about to offer. And then after the consecration, begging him, like the Subdus Derogamas, to accept this. Right. So we know it's valid, but we're still asking God to accept it because the whole thing has to be done with love. I had the thought about Ken and Abel, but also about the fine points of the mass. I don't want to forget either. With Ken and Abel, it was they went out to the field. Um, mm -hmm. That's where he murdered him. And there are other connections through the Bible with Jacob and Esau mm -hmm. and Rebecca and Isaac that take place in the field, and they, they all end up pointing to Calvary. Well, that's that's in the book, the Crucifixion to Creation, but. Uh, about the mass, just thinking of the corporal, for example, and the verse, you know, the way the priest follows the corporal is the same every single time. And he puts it into the verse, the same direction every time. And the verse should be laid on the chalice facing the tabernacle. So every priest basically knows um, how it's going to be. It's the same order. And it's all done to preserve the dignity of if some particles of the host were in the corporal. They're going to be in the same place in the same first fold, and they will be found the next day and put into charge. Now, that's, you don't want that to happen. No, but, but it's, it's feel safe. Than yeah. not having a corporal or folding up the corporal willy-nilly, whatever. The, 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 or everything we have in the Mass, it's been stripped already, as it were, to its essentials, and yet it, it's full of these embellishments of love. At the same time, I think that's what I'm trying to say, that the yeah. what we think are embellishments of love are also actually essential to the good of the worship of God and vice versa. It's perfect. It's perfect. Since 1570, 
I'm sorry, I'm into a bit of a flow now, but with Crow That's okay. Freedom, people ask, you know, one Pope, he can't lay down legislation what other Popes can do or not. So Pius V couldn't say in 1570 that no one can ban this mass. That is such a legalistic, positive way of thinking, as if it's just about the law. But the right. Pope Pius V, the saint, is telling us something much more about the good of the mass. It's like, woe to anyone who dreams of changing this, especially a bishop or a Pope who tries to do that, they have lost the spirituality, the truth, if they even wish to change it. And then when they do with traditional custodians try to forbid priests from offering the old mass, they don't have a leg to stand on. Today's gospel um, from Friday and Holy Week is the end of Matthew's gospel where Jesus gives the Great Commission. He's saying, go and observe everything whatsoever I've commanded. Now, this means we, in our ordination, we have our mission to do that, and no one can take it away, post-ordination or even from the church. You know, there's so much there. There's so much there. This is wonderful. And um, I'm thinking back to, so when I was doing that talk last year on the New Mass, I was looking through some of the works of Michael Davies, um, obviously an amazing scholar on, on the history of the liturgy and so forth. And one of the things I realized is that, you know, you'll never find a time in history where a heretic doesn't, like basically you always find a radical change to the mass or the service along with a radical change to theology or the Bible. They're inextricably linked. You'll never find that a heretic also keeps the mass totally the same. Mm -hmm. it, it, it may be for a transitionary period a little bit, okay? In, in England, it was pretty much the same for a bit, but, but even there, it was part of the plan of Cramner and so forth to you know, still play to their Catholic sensibilities, let them ease into this Church of England, then eventually, you know, lead the lead the way to different changes. But it wasn't a, that was it was it was just a transitionary thing. With Luther, I mean, we're talking about here. Basically, what we're saying is, and what you're saying for us is that in the Mass is the Mass is divine revelation. The Mass, mm -hmm. the Mass is it is. Um, it's I want to use it. I want to use this term properly. It's almost like a theatrical. I know it's valid, but there's almost like a theater to it. It's like the scriptures are played out for us so that we can understand them with every single sense of our being. Yeah. Man, man having an immortal soul, we know things through the senses. So to keep things in our immortal soul, to keep the immaterial in the rational soul that makes us a human rather than just an animal, we have to take in knowledge and it has to be part of who we are. And in order to do that, we have to learn these things through the senses. So we can look at the scriptures and read them. And that's obviously very important, but we can't understand the scriptures to the fullest unless we actually feel the scriptures and we taste the scriptures. You know, I'm thinking about, um, I'll forget the prophet. Is it Elias or is it, um, that he talks about eating the scriptures? It um, might be Jeremiah. Might be Jeremiah. Anyway, that's scroll. obviously, yeah, the scroll, eating the scroll. That's right. And it tastes like honey or something like that. I think there's some, some reference there. And obviously that's a prefigurement of the Eucharist to come, but it's also a prefigurement, in my opinion, of how the Eucharist will be eaten, how the Eucharist will be presented to us, because he's talking about eating the scroll. He's talking about consuming the sacred scriptures as if it's food. And there's just an inextricable link between proper understanding of the scriptures and proper understanding of Holy Eucharist. And when they change the mass, it's no wonder that the theology of the church changed. It's impossible. This is why people don't understand. The hermeneutic of continuity is a very, is a very difficult thing to try to validate because you can't mix oil and water. You can't have 
something that is in contrast mm -hmm. to all of tradition and mix it with something that is traditional. It's just not going to work. Yeah. It's, if, if when I was um, quite little, I think it's amazing that we exist, that we can <laughs> communicate, yeah. which indicates having an intellect, understanding, but also that we can act in a sovereign way. We can, can decide to think this or think that, do this or do that, even though there might be external limitations in ourselves. We have this amazing capability, which should blow us away, which is the spark of the divine, even Trinitarian, that we are, yeah. that we can communicate ideas and that we can do and act together to mm. achieve much more than one person acting alone. So existence has this amazing potential, which reaches up to God. And so life on earth should also reflect this amazing potential. And the church realizes that. And in the mass, we realize that because it isn't enough to read the word. It's not living. The word is meant to be spoken. And the truth is something that's meant to be done. It's not enough to know the truth. It's, it's something you do to live truly. Yeah. And so in the mass, we see it's that alone which unites all generations right back to Adam and Eve and to Abel. Yeah. Abel lives, Abel's in heaven, Abel is at the banquet. He did well, you know, and yeah, he's yeah. mentioned in every mass. It's right. in the mass that you come to Abel and you all know what he did. You know, I had someone comment on my YouTube channel recently that Abel's life came to a big fat zero. And they said that Cain was, he repented and was forgiven and built a city, he did well. They've, they've turned everything completely on its head. It's in, insane. And um, you couldn't possibly think like that if you're, if you're going to weekly your daily mass and you love the camp. Yeah. Um, so it is it's something we have to do. And the striving to do it is also what purifies and elevates society. It's now under attack for us. Has been, well, it has been for all time since the murder of the prophets and then of Christ. And then the persecutions of the early church, the Reformation, everything we've seen since the Enlightenment. This is why we mustn't roll over to what Rome is trying to do now. We call it Rome. It's not enough to call it Francis or Cardinal Roche. It's much bigger than them. It's a cosmic battle that's happening. And it's appalling that our cardinals have gone over literally to the dark side literally serving Satan's goals. They might not know that. You could perhaps argue they're of goodwill, but their goodwill and their infatuation is with the world, with the globalists, with pleasing them. Um, so you... Well, I just want this, I, wanna, I, don't, I don't wanna move past this idea of the cosmos for a second here, because mm -hmm. there's an idea about, and you can find this in Father Faber. Admittedly, I've not read the whole book. I've just read sort of essays and things about Father Faber's work about the extent to which, if I'm going to say it properly, the precious blood extends into the cosmos yeah. and actually puts right the material universe. This reminds me of um, one of the qu quotes attributed to Padre Pio. I think it's legitimate where, you know, that it would be easier for the world to exist without the sun than without the mass. Mm -hmm. Now, Padre Pio was talking about the old mass. And he was talking about the, and obviously he would have assumed there was the Eastern liturgies, the traditional liturgies, the traditional sacrificial offering of the Catholic Church. Why is it necessary for 
the sacrifice to continue and to happen worthily for the actual sustainability of the earth as we know it? Well, the um, book you mentioned, Crucifixion to Creation, it begins talking about Aristotle and St. Thomas saying about divine wisdom. The architect who made the universe has laid the purpose of the universe into the foundation because a wise architect doesn't just start building without a plan. Everything he does in the preparation, the gathering of materials, the choosing of the site is with the last goal in mind. He knows what building he wants to make. Exactly. So when God created the heavens and the earth and the separations and the filling and laid out the Garden of Eden, it's all to point to the goal of the universe, which is to bring us to the heavenly banquet, which is by means of Calvary and by Holy Mass. So if you remove Holy Mass, the universe loses its purpose and the precious blood which flows in mass truly um it redeems the whole cosmos i have father faber's book in one of my boxes i've, I've been moved so many times I've, <laughs> after four months in this location i've still not unpacked my boxes because i just i'm tra trained now what is it like a, to think oh, i'm going to be moved on but it's it's glorious what he writes about the procession of the precious blood and you know we have processions before vespers for example before mass and I remember in the seminary, it, it, it would it would last quite a long time. And it's so impressive. It's beautiful. Uh, also, before an ordination, when there's lots of guest clerics and the procession before and after goes on and on and on. And you have all these pairs of clerics coming, genuflecting to the Blessed Sacrament, going to their place. It's like it fits with the litany of saints where you have all the grades and types of saints and so many names that you recognize. And this is a procession which should be endless in a way, because it talks about the procession of the precious blood. And Father Faber, uh, well, the procession of the Holy Ghost, actually. But Father Faber talks about the procession of the precious blood through the whole cosmos, which is a delight to the angels who are always there to, to praise it. And it's a delight to God the Father who looks on this blood and keeps the universe in existence because of it. If it were not for it, why would God tolerate this filthy, corrupt um, creation which we've the devil and we have spoiled with sin. It's because his blood pleads looking at the end goal. He has the end result in mind. That's why he loves each one of us, even though we're a sinner. He knows how we're going to end when he's worked on us, redeemed us, put us through the mill. And that's why, you, you know, if you believe in your ability to heal as a doctor and you're looking at someone that's sick, you don't quit or give up. You believe you, you can do this. And how much more God who, who looks on our sinners. And he knows that by his blood. It, it, what did Jesus say? When an unclean thing touches the clean thing, mm -hmm. the clean becomes defiled. But when it's with him, touching him, the holy thing, nothing can defile him. Right. It's he that makes holy that which comes into contact with him. So... I've never heard it explained so succinctly, but I'm thinking of the, the term telos, right? Or telos, you know, the, the, the teleological end. It's a Greek word meaning, you know, what is the end of a thing? Yeah. So you make this analogy of someone building a house or building a structure. Obviously, the, the end of that thing is in mind before it's created. So its end exists before its beginning. Yeah. Right. The, and this the is, final yeah. cause informs the efficient cause. Right. And although we think the efficient cause is the beginning of things because it gets things going... Uh, well, you, you, 
that it's Thomas explains this as well. You can't have an efficient cause if there isn't already a final cause. Right. That's the cause of causes. It's it's the first thing because it's the last thing. As in, once you know the goal, everything else is is laid out. Sorry for interrupting. No, that's perfect. And this is why Christ is the beginning and the end. It's not just some spiritual maxim. It's not just some yeah. ineffable expression. It's an actual philosophical statement of the nature of reality. Yeah. And this is why evolution that we didn't I, I don't know I didn't know I was going to bring this up but this is why I can't stand the theory of evolution uh because it's metaphysically bankrupt it contains watched your video oh <laughs> uh, fantastic fantastic everyone's got to watch it thank you well by the way people I forgot father does have a YouTube channel which is linked in the description and I will mention that in the introduction but if you missed the introduction scripture and tradition you can find that on YouTube and I'll link that in the show notes as well um but that evolution you know there's no telos to it. No, it's um, embarrassing. It's an embarrassing, it's a metaphysical, it's a it's a philosophical train wreck. Yeah. I was watching, there's this famous podcast, I've never watched one of the full episodes, but it, you know, he gets like 10 million views. It's, it's, it's recommended on YouTube, okay? And it's Lex Friedman. He's, uh, he's like an MIT professor, very intelligent guy, but you know, very much a materialist, uh, you know, talking about science and these things. Some interesting clips, because you know, you do three hour podcasts, you say some interesting things. But he did have this fellow talking about AI uh, on, and this guy's, you know, another, you know, quote unquote genius. And um, they were talking about mathematical models to try to prove evolutionary theory and how they all fail, but they were still explaining why there's still truth to evolutionary theory. And I was thinking, math has an end. You know, you have, there, there's, a, there's a, it's ordered towards calculation. And here you are, you guys are both literal mathematical geniuses. I mean, you know, in fairness to them, they probably have bankrupt metaphysics, but I'm sure they could, they're better than a calculator. Um, but they still, because their philosophy is so bankrupt, they can't see right in front of them that their own baseline philosophy for why we exist is completely flawed. They still try to find the meaning in that, and they can't. Yeah. And, and this is, you know... Uh, people will debate, okay, the age of the universe. I, I'm personally basically a young earth creationist. I understand, though, it's not dogmatized, and, and there are ways to look at the days of creation. This is according to the Pontifical Biblical Commission and various authoritative sources at the time. I get it. It's not like, you know, you must believe a certain amount of, of time. I get that. But nonetheless, evolution, I think, is completely anathematized by the Catholic faith. But when I look at um, when I look at the state of the Catholic Church nowadays— and I look at a lot the state of conservative apologetics, let's call it sort of mainline conservative. There is this, and there's this uh, desire on behalf of conservative Catholic apologists who are uh, seemingly of goodwill. They won't deny any of the dogmas, and they'll express that you know transubstantiation is real, and all these important aspects of the Apostles' Creed and so forth. But when it comes to evolution, they just can't help themselves but try to square that circle in order to appeal to the world, and it just. Uh, it goes against what you're saying here, this teleological end of the universe. It's almost, maybe yeah. I could say this, evolution is almost is almost uh, against the theology of the mass, if that makes sense. It is, because the whole Eucharist is the source of all truth on earth. Right. It is the fullness of being on earth. And it's the departure from the scholastic metaphysics right. prior to the Reformation that enabled the Reformation and the degeneration in philosophy since then. So the fact that we're appalled to see how brainwashed people were in the last three years to believe all the yeah. garbage they're being fed and they can't critically think about things. 
is actually, we should have known that because there's a widespread acceptance of gay marriage and abortion. Clearly, yeah, yeah. people have lost their minds. But before that, a widespread <laughs> acceptation of evolution, which is yes. insane. It, it contradicts the principle of sufficient reason, which is one of four basic metaphysical principles, which there's no observed example of in all the history of mankind. And they talk about science. And yet this thing cannot be observed that there was ever something that came without a sufficient cause for itself. Evolution right. is not just metaphysically and philosophically insane. It's scientifically completely unsupported. And it's just mental. Why don't people understand that to get, you have a gerbil <laughs> that one day gives birth to a rabbit. They'll say, no, 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 of course not. Yeah. It's gradual changes. Well, show me these freak animals made out of gradual changes where every yeah. single animal is perfect for its telos, for its niche, perfectly yeah. designed. We don't see any where if they had to gradually phase from one to the other, they would, they would be dead within days because they're unsuited to, to anything. And so if you say, well, it's not gradual changes, it's these sudden leaps, punctuated equilibrium or whatever, well, that's just unsustainable yes. because we can't imagine any species giving birth, never mind an ape giving birth to a rational creature. And I think you said in the video at just the same time that another one did to a female, or perhaps that wasn't your video. Yeah. Are we no really words, yeah. to believe that Adam and Eve, or whatever you they would want to call them, came independently or something just at the right time, or that there was a whole bunch of humans being born by apes and finally two men up. It's, it's, it's insane. And so yeah. the Bible, in fact, is the fullness of truth. And the more we understand the truth of what God is saying, Jesus about the Holy Eucharist, for example, in John 6 or at the Last Supper, but then the whole of it, including Genesis, I think there is no better explanation for it than to accept it like a child, the young earth creation. Yes. Um, well, that's what that's what uh, Marcel Lefebvre in his everyone should pick up a copy of his books, My Spiritual Journey. It's only 75, 80 pages. And it was almost like a last spiritual testament that he wrote. And it was meant for basically what is the spirit of the priesthood and, and written, written in very, he probably wrote by hand, it was written in, written in very easy to understand terms, much like father's um, five year old level homilies in Germany. Everyone could understand it. And he touched on this idea of creation. And he said something, you know, the way Lefebvre spoke. He said very little in some ways, but very much in, in the condensed way that he spoke. And he just said something like, you know, what more can we say? We must just accept Genesis with simple faith, mm -hmm. you know? And it wasn't explaining it away. He was just saying, you know, I look at that and I go, these, you know, as Bishop Williamson would say, the scientists, you know, he always makes fun of the scientists in his lectures. You know, they're serious with their white coats and whatever. And I, I love how he talks about it. But... You know, these very serious people get on podcasts or radio or lectures, or whatever, and they have degrees out the wazoo and they've done calculations out the wazoo and they show that their theories are metaphysically and mathematically bankrupt, yet they still say there must be a reason why what we're doing is not insane. Whereas a simple child can just read the scriptures and go, oh yeah, God made us. Okay, moving on. <laughs> you know, yeah. it's, what else could it be, you know? This, the highest science is and has to be theology, and after right. it is metaphysics, followed by the other philosophies. And to have, to have lost all that again because of the Reformation and detachment from Catholic universities mm -hmm. leaves us just floating so people can assert the crazy theories. And evolution is basically, it's partly political, but very much yes. diabolical to separate us from our creator. It makes the creator distant, and unfortunately, why is it that people think once you have the theory of evolution, you've solved 
the question of creation, which you haven't even addressed. No, you haven't. And you can't. But it gives people that impression because it puts it so far back. Whereas if we believe what the scriptures tell us and the liturgy celebrates, God the Father is so close to us. He's so close. You know, 6,000 years might seem like an awful long time. 2,000 years seems like a long time. But once you learn about, let's say, St. Augustine Mm -hmm. and St. Odo and then St. Francis Xavier, you've punctuated that at 500-year gaps. Mm -hmm. It it, it bridges the 2,000 years. And then you learn something about King David and Mm -hmm. Moses and Abraham, and you're punctuating the time back. So it's through the most human thing for us is to learn other people, learn the, to know other people, their lives. And you bridge the whole way back to Adam and Eve with relatively few people and realize that our nature hasn't changed one bit. Yeah. Then you love and sorrow and anger yeah, and self-sacrifice. Yeah. And I think that if you, there is something in your heart ready for self-sacrifice, you will know very quickly, you will recognize who is Jeremiah, for example. Um, and you know you have a, a close kinship with him, the, the same father. Hmm. Yeah, it's amazing. Um, there's so much that could be said there. Uh, so I think now, I think we should move on because I wanted to talk about, speaking of we're so close to the patriarchs, if you think about it, we're just generations removed from from our literal first parents. Um, let's talk about the whole Jewish question. Now, before we do that, I want to preface this because, listen, obviously telling the truth and saying things like it is, that's important. But if we can speak in a way that is delicate to sensibilities and it's more effective in communicating, then we should we should try to do those things when necessary. Not always possible, but when we can, we should. Um, when I say the Jewish question, I want to, I want to um, explain what I think are two pitfalls that Christians fall into when talking about the Jewish question people, the history, and so forth. On the one, I'll call it the sort of neoconservative, Israel is a shining city on the hill, the Jewish people are still, you know, it's the, it's the evangelical understanding of the, the, the Jewish race, the Jewish people, the Jewish history, as if there's two covenants. Israel is, this, you know, the Protestants are, if you watch their, some of their shows, they're literally hoping for the temple in Jerusalem to be built right. because they think the rapture is going to come, so they're going to miss out on all the chastisement. It's just foolish, and they're hoping for the end of the world. I watched a clip the other day from the Christian Broadcasting Network. <laughs> they were talking about, you know, whatever it is, the four heifers that have to be there or something like that for the temple. Yeah. And they're like, so-and-so was part of the Evangelical Jewish Alliance, and they're breeding these heifers and hoping to get them to maturity so they can finally use them for the temple. There's plans to build it. I'm thinking, you guys are trying to bring on the end times. You're insane. Um, that's a crazy error, which is sadly, um, because of the Protestant influence, is not absent in Catholic uh, circles, especially in the sort of neoconservative areas. On the other hand, in the traditional world, and of course we're both traditionalists here, um, there is a much clearer understanding of the history of, of, of Jewish history in the church and in, in, in salvation history. But as we all are fallen, sometimes people can fall into a philosophical fallacy when um, they look at uh, uh, persons as part of a group as if they contain certain immutable characteristics that makes that person intrinsically evil. Right. And that's just, that's just a, that's an error no matter the group. So I want to avoid those two traps, if that makes sense. And I want to still in, um, focus on the real importance of understanding the history of the Jews and their current importance in, in the unfolding of the eschatological ends of the world. And I know this is something that's very 
important to you. You've talked about it a lot. Could you maybe bring us through that a little bit? Sure. And I see a very similar uh, tightrope to be walked between two ways of, of falling off. Um, yeah. it's, it's, very, it's why I left the fraternity and why mm. I've written these four books is basically to try and deal with the Jewish question. And why I've only recently, I've had this YouTube channel for a year and a bit, and I've only recently started raising it, doing it very carefully, because the two pitfalls, as I perceive it, one is if we say that the pandemic is because the Jews want to take over the world, you'll yeah. immediately be said, you're a conspiracy theorist, you're yeah. a nutter. <laughs> Which in yeah. fact dismisses the fact though, that the Jews themselves say that the Messiah is Israel, who will dominate the world yeah. and it's happening. So we have to be realistic. But the other danger, yeah. I think, is I have seen such a hatred of the Jews from someone, a couple of people who are in touch with me electronically. One even put, say, talking of St. Peter, they put saint in like 10 sets of brackets because they, yeah, any silly. Jew, they hate them. And this is someone yeah. I think who considers himself Catholic. And yeah. it's insane. So my fear is that if it were, I, th I think the traditionalist custodians can be traced back to Jewish influence. Like we talk of the Protestant influence on the mass, the yeah. Reformation itself is because of Jewish influence and Jewish yeah. academics boast about this. They say yeah. how the Jews being expelled from Spain went like so many seeds all over Europe and yeah. furthered the Reformation. Yeah. But if we have some mad self-righteous indignation and think that, we didn't crucify Christ by our sins, which we all yes. have. He right. died for all our sins. And we, we want to target the Jews with anger and injustice. That's what I'm terrified of. It's just going to be a, an endless cycle, which suits the devil. The, That's the right. devil wants us to hate each other. And our example from Abel onward through Abraham and Isaac, through Moses, who was the meekest of all men on the world yeah. then, through David, who in Psalm 7 says, if I did this thing, if I lifted my hands against my enemy without cause, without cause, or against God's anointed, he never hurt God's anointed, Saul, even though Saul, what Saul was doing was evil. Saul was trying to destroy David. And, and David, though he had chances to kill Saul, when Saul was sleeping or relieving himself in a cave, David didn't do it. This is preparing us for the example of Jesus Christ. Right who didn't lift a finger against his persecutors. And then we see St. Stephen did the same thing perfectly, seeing Jesus in heaven, imitated Jesus. And this is how the church lives. And hmm. so the, the exegete who said he had never read the book of Genesis or the formator, uh, the book of yeah. Exodus, you know, the Jews say, the rabbis teach that the reason God made the universe was to build the tabernacle. Huh. Wow. So that in the tabernacle, he could meet with us. And yet they don't see that the tabernacle, everything about it is about the body of Christ, the humanity of Christ. So they're right to say God's first idea was the tabernacle, except they don't know what the tabernacle is. Our lady is also the tabernacle in whom Jesus right. dwelt bodily. So again, when, when the saints tell us that Mary is God's first idea and the rabbis say, no, the tabernacle is God's first idea. In fact, they're so close. The saints are correct. The Jews, if the veil is lifted from their heart, will see it's about Mary, it's about Jesus. And I personally believe that when they convert and start unlocking the scriptures to us, it's going to blow us away. But I, I love to find in the Torah, so the fourth book in my series is about the conversion of the Jews promised in the Torah. 
that one will come out the end of June. And I think I know what I'm doing. But if you have a rabbi who's been studying the Torah all his life, and if he converts and starts to tell us how to find Jesus here and Mary and the church and the sacrifice of the mass and the victory of the Antichrist, ironically, it's probable that at that stage, most of the world will have apostatized, which is just... Yes. That's yep. part of that's part of the, the end times predictions and so but forth. Anyway, they will be yeah. so zealous because they'll have this yeah. contrition for more than two thousand years of denying Christ that nothing will shift them from their new faith. Nothing will make them deny Christ. The Antichrist and all his forces, and we can't imagine how strong that power is going to be at the end. But God is preparing His perfect. Um, son, victim, weapon against that, which will defeat it. And for some mysterious reason, it, it involves this long delay and persecution of the church. If people deny that there are enemies of the cross who want to destroy the church, and that this has been happening through all the centuries, it, the, the New Testament is full of it, of Judaizing, trying to change the doctrine. And then the Gnostic heresies were often Jewish. Arius the, was a Jew uh, or a Catholic. Was he? He was, a priest, he was Jewish background. Of okay. course we don't, because it's all expurged from the history books. Oh, you should be accused of being an anti-Semite if you point it out. Mm -hmm. The Reformation, Luther learned Hebrew. He translated from the Hebrew. Um, he learned that from the Jews. And yeah. how is it he has such a hatred of so many uh, Christian books, uh, even in the Bible? Because he's learning it from this source, which is expert in Hebrew but which has no idea about the meaning of the scriptures, really. Mm. Um, so they've, they've constantly have this influence, which they can talk about and brag about. But when a Gentile mentions it, you're accused of being a hater. So we're in a, a topsy-turvy situation. And I, I think the, the answer to it is basically shown to us by St. Stephen. He gave a... I think it's 1,000 word resume in Acts chapter seven of the whole, right. the whole Old Testament. Not just, he did it by speaking about um, Abraham, Joseph and Moses, and then about the temple and idolatry. With these four, he summarizes the whole Old Testament and about 10 times in that speech, he shows how it's all about Jesus mm -hmm. being rejected by his own, but who on the second visit is successful. And for it, they were furious and killed him, which they've never ceased to do to the church since then. But this whole thing about the second visit is, is talking about they will convert before our Lord comes. And God would have arranged everything so that history ends perfectly, complete a complete people for himself. Well said. Yeah. Um, there's not much more I could add uh, to that. Um, it would be an amazing thing to see someone, even just on a natural level, who has studied the Jewish scriptures in their original, well, as close to the original language understanding as possible, and then have their mind illumined by sanctifying grace. I mean, they'd be the, they'd be automatically the greatest scripture scholar on earth. Well, Saint Paul, that's Saint <laughs> yeah, Paul. that's Saint Paul. Yeah. That's who he is. Well, and Saint Jerome, Saint Jerome. I mean, he wasn't a Jew, but he spent so much time in Palestine, mm -hmm. and 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 Father Meager, how we mentioned, who understood the Mass. I mean, the reason why that book is so incredible is because he lived and breathed the closest thing to the ancient culture of the Holy Land still around today. And just, I mean, there's things in his book talking about 
they had a festival. I mean, they had a festival where, you know, the men would all go squish the grapes in garments that were white, and they'd come out soaked in the blood of the grapes, and then they'd right. go find a bride. And it's like, from Basel. of course, that's what it is, you know, like everything, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Can I? It's amazing. Um, clarify one point about sure. the scriptures and it. Um, I think Tim Flanders wrote a great book about understanding the Old Testament where he's saying it's very misleading and hard to search for this original text as if there's this original yeah. text and that the Septuagint, the Greek, is actually what Jesus and most of the New Testament authors would quote from. It, I find it a complete tragedy in the church now that almost everywhere, and even the Dari Reims Bible website is beginning to do it, they use the Masoretic numbering for the Psalms. If, this yeah. is much more important than we might think, but the Psalms were written, 150 of them, and then the Septuagint was translated a couple of hundred years before Christ using these 70 Jewish scholars who, who came together, who understood the scriptures better than anybody, yeah. gave a p perfect translation with 150 Psalms numbered. Yeah. Then the church fathers would cite this as well as the New Testament authors. Yeah. And the church held on to this. And the Vulgate had the same psalm numbering from St. Jerome. Yeah. And the church has used that ever since until the last few decades. What happened? A thousand years after Christ, the Jews took the scriptures and they decided to give numbers to the psalms in the Masoretic text. And they numbered them differently. And the first one where there's a split, Psalm 910, it's one of these acrostic psalms where the first letter of each line, it goes through the alphabet, or Aleph, because it's Hebrew. And they've split that into two psalms, which is very unusual. In fact, it makes no sense. They've made a mistake. And as for the other psalms in the 140-something, whatever, to try and make it end up 150, the Bible, Biblical Commission said over 100 years ago, that there's really you can argue both ways who's right who's wrong it's difficult but in that case why would we change it when psalm 910 is clearly one psalm why would we change it because the protestants did we've now followed the protestants and the jews a thousand years before christ instead of following the vulgate and the septuagint and the new testament authors it's it's a it's a disgrace so you get now if you look on the new Advent website you can read the fathers and they'll give you a, a reference to Psalm 22. You go to the section of the scriptures and it's Psalm 21. Yes, well, that's always so frustrating. A Nestle Land Bible is it's a fantastic piece of scholarship. But you look up a reference in the New Testament to one of the Psalms and it gives you a different numbering to what's in the Old Testament section. So you have this real confusion for nothing because we have this wrong idea that the Jews understand the Old Testament better than we do because they speak right. Hebrew. That's false. Right. Now, they understand Hebrew better than us, I guess. That, well, definitely better than me. They, and <laughs> they, they know they can tell you the Torah off by heart, some of them. But that's like certain Protestants. They can cite chapter and verse, but they can't tell you about Holy Mass or the Virgin Mary. So how can we say they've understood the scriptures? Right. The church has lost her confidence, lost in herself, in the divine revelation, the deposit of faith. And she's mm -hmm. chasing after the world, letting the world and the Protestants and ultimately the Jews, leader of that which Jesus and the apostles gave to us. This attempt will fail, but it's it's getting, it seems a bit close to the wind right now. Um, and things like the numbering of the Psalms matter. They matter hugely. They're part of our identity. 
And it's just, it's a layer of confusion we don't need. And it's a shame about our history that we have no need to take on. Well, I just thought of this now. Uh, renumbering of the Psalms is a veiled attack against the Virgin Mary uh, because the Psalter is 150 Hail Marys. Right. And well, the, they, you know, they did. They had to, having made one adjustment near the beginning, they had they had a couple more towards the end to get it back to 150. Oh, they did. Okay. Um, well, th there are more Psalms, but it was always it, everyone kind of recognized they have to be 150 um, in okay. in their canonical scriptures. So it's not 151 then in the redone. There is a Psalm of David, um, the, the 151st, but it, it appears in some, um, I think, Latin translations, but not it's it's not counted as canonical. Oh, okay. What by so I read the Dewey Reims. I think I have it over there. Uh, but I've also personally, I've I've enjoyed reading the Revised Standard Version for study and things. I mean, uh, obviously, my opinion for when people pick a Bible translation, if you're not some sort of language expert, is staying away is, is making sure you have the right commentary. So the revised standard version that I have has no commentary. It's like a, it's like a pocket version. It's like a little zipper bag and I could fit in my back pocket. So there's no chance of any sort of modernist, uh, uh, notes. Um, is that the Catholic edition? It's the Catholic edition. Yeah. 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 Um, I actually find as well, there's, uh, the, there's a scripture scholar I like, he talks, and he's Catholic, and he talks about the English Standard Version as actually being a very accurate translation, but he says to, to stay away from the notes. I don't know if that's true. What do you, what do you recommend? Is it just Dewey Reams, you would say there? to people? or Yeah. Uh, would um, you say just Dewey Reams for people? No, I, I think it, it's good to read whatever you're comfortable with, and you okay. grow, basically, and then you'll change it. So I, I find as well that the RSVC is quite, it's very readable. Mm -hmm. um, and when I was in prison in Burma, an immigration guard who was in my interrogation managed to slip me a Protestant Bible. Um, yeah. And it blew me away. It was because I hadn't read most of the scriptures for years and then had right. nothing else to do in prison but read it. And then when I went back to prison the year after, I made sure I had a Catholic Bible and, <laughs> and I discovered the um, deuterocanonical books, or these, well, these right. seven extra books. It was awesome. And after that, I thought, how can anyone live without Sirach yeah. and wisdom um, yeah. and Judith? On the Maccabees. So I, I, as in the seminary, thanks be to God, I had the chance to learn much improved Latin and then Greek and then Hebrew. And the more I look into it, the less concerned I am about translations. You, I see you, what you're saying. It's so nobody's ever going to pin it down with a translation. Yeah. And I, I don't know if I've said this elsewhere, but, um, you know, Andrew Lloyd Webber has, he put out a lot of musicals, including Joseph and his technical dream coat in the 1970s. And that's yeah. what we had at school when I was a kid growing up. We yeah. would do it several times, fell in love with it. And embarrassingly, I would go to London and even watch it on my own several times, this production. <laughs> it, it's all about Joseph, right? And there's a scene where these skeletons of sheep come out and claps in the famine. And I'd even start um, to get emotional thinking, wow, this is speaking of a real famine where people are really starving. Now, there's not one single line in that production from the lyricist Tim Rice, which records with the line from the Bible. But you get the story of Joseph, who is betrayed right. by his brothers, thrown in the pit, um, drawn out, who rises to the top and becomes the savior of the world through giving bread. And they called him the savior of the world and bent the knee to him, which all prefigures Jesus. So right. even if you completely butcher the lines the words of the bible the text the translation and you turn it into tim rice lyrics for an andrew lloyd webber production 
you still get the main lines that Jesus Christ was thrown into the pit, rose out, comes to the top of the world and saves us, gives us the bread of life. You can't destroy the Bible because the truth of it is written in every layer. I, I can find seven layers in the Bible, whether you take the thing as a whole, you have this structure, um, I'll try and speed up, or the, a book of the Bible, or a pericope, or a sentence, or a word, or a letter. You have the same story. You know, the letter Tav is the cross, the last, the last yeah. letter. Yeah, and the um, Aleph is the first letter. And in the first word of the Bible, uh, the first sentence, you have this particle in Hebrew, et, Aleph, Tav. Like, what's that? It has no meaning in itself but it points to the next word being the direct object, but it actually means the alpha and the omega. Right. And it also means Aleph stands for God, the spirit and T the cross. You have God on the cross. Right. This tiny little word has so much meaning in it. And the whole structure of the Bible, if you take the Jesus spoke of Moses, the Psalms and the prophets, which is like basically the book, the, the law, the prophets and the Ketuvim, the writings of which the Psalms are the head, three yeah. massive sections. When the Jews say there's nothing in the prophets which isn't in the Torah, it's like the father and son. The Torah is all like the father. It's about the patriarchs. It's about the law, the foundation creation. The prophets is all about the son being murdered for articulating the truth. And yet there's nothing in the prophets that isn't in the Torah. It's like the father and the son imaging each other. And the Ketuvim or the Psalms is full of these doublets where you get the truth through two lines. It's like the Holy Spirit coming from this principle, joint principle of father and son. And that's the Old Testament. Then you have the New with the four Gospels, which tell us of the life of Christ. Then the Book of Acts and ending with the Apocalypse. Now, the Book of Acts is the beginning of the church. The Apocalypse is the end of the church. And everything in between is the life of the church. Paul's epistles, Peter's, Jude's, John's, James's. So it's as if you have the life of Christ, the head, followed by the whole life of the church from beginning to end. And before that was the Holy Trinity. God hidden, unrevealed. We didn't know it's Trinitarian because Jesus hadn't come. And even within the Gospels, you have the three synoptics, which can speak of Father, Son, and Spirit, and then St. John's, which is like the incarnate Christ. So the, the, the whole Bible on its biggest scale structure tells us about the Trinity, the incarnation, the life of the church. It's, it's amazing. Um, wow. You should write a book on the Bible. <laughs> <laughs> well, or four of them <laughs> I'm trying, I'm trying that's the fruit of being locked up in prison uh, people think I'm crazy yeah. right because I left the fraternity I have I have my reasons but let's, let's, hope, let's, let's speak about that because I wanted to talk about that I, I, if um, I can just one sure. in prison I got the bible and I wrote a book about that wherein I put I fell in love with the Jews and one of my editors told me it wasn't a professional editor said take that line out you can't put that and I said well it's true it's true. And for the sake of Moses, I'm not going to take it out. I left it in there. I fell in love with the Jews. And now 25 years later, I, I think, well, God wanted me to have that time in prison with the Bible. He wanted me to have 40 months solitary confinement the next time with the Catholic Bible, because otherwise I was too stupid to ever read it. I would have never got around to reading it. I sympathize with young men now that don't read the Bible because they think they haven't got time. They have yeah. their work and their social life. Read the Bible. You have to. Or your life is is not going to be directed, hmm. and and God even locked me up to get me to do it. I'm glad. I'm, I rejoice for that time. Excellent. Okay, so um, you mentioned that you left the fraternity, and we briefly touched on 
part of it had to do with the Jewish question. I know part of it had to do with your resistance, in my opinion, rightfully so, to the the COVID mandate uh, restrictions and things like that. Um, would you like to explain kind of how that all took place? Sure. Um, I, I think the fraternity, as far as I'm concerned, is the best body of priests I know in the church. There, there might be better ones, but I obviously don't know that many. I just I'm thoroughly impressed with them, and uh, they're very like the society of Pastor Tenth, I'd say. And I know there's bad blood for obvious reasons, which is kind of I do see that among the older generation, the bad blood. I was going to say that it's usually amongst the older ones. I was at the March for Life in Ottawa last year, and fraternity priests, society priests. I mean. Sure, different opinions on certain things, but they were both marching in the procession together. It wasn't a big deal. Right. Yeah. And so I, I'm the happiest days of my life since childhood were in the seminary in Vigratsbad. And then, um, in fact, although I love serving as a priest, it was during the lockdowns that, although it was a terrible, terrible time, the fact that we, I say we, I mean the few of the faithful, myself, we found a way to keep the mass going every day. We never stopped, even mm. in these fearful lockdowns in, in Vienna and in Cologne under Merkel. You know, even I think Easter 2021, it's amazing if you can remember the years now, Merkel wanted a new lockdown just for the Easter weekend. It was yes, just a that. witch. That was insane. Yeah. Yeah. The, the German businesses wouldn't have it, and even the German bishops stood up to it. <clears throat> but in, in Vienna, after we got through the lockdown, um, which um, Cardinal Schönborn said, you cannot give Holy Communion on the tongue, when they were opening up the churches again. Mm-hmm. Or his chancery said that. Like, I don't know if he personally knows that was said or not, but there's there's demons in the chancery that, saw this as an opportunity to um, hurt the trads, separate them from Christ, because you can't possibly be such an imbecile that you really believe you're dealing with a health crisis by preventing communion on the tongue. It's just insane to think yeah. you can transmit a virus in this way. Yeah. And that, that to receive on the hand is okay, but the tongue is not, as if yeah. the margin means anything. And, means and people have proved anyway it's safer on the tongue, as yeah. if it's just not dangerous. And it's our Lord. It's worth it. It's, some people say, oh, you can't, the, you can't get any disease off the sacred species. I don't think that's true. I think it's just, who cares? You're receiving Yeah, yeah exactly. Who cares? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I re- refused to accept this. And I announced in the homily at the Sunday Mass, for those who wish to receive communion, you can come as normal. Because I wanted people to have time to prepare, not to be surprised that suddenly they're receiving communion. Um, and for that, basically, and for saying the message on the lockdown, I was removed from Vienna. Then in Cologne, I was removed because people complained there were too many attending the Easter Triduum. And then in Switzerland, I was told I couldn't offer public masses if I refused to wear the mask to distribute Holy Communion. And of course, I refuse. There's an asymmetry here. I don't know anyone that goes taking masks off people. We never wanted anybody to be penalized for wearing a mask. And yet yeah. they're strangely willing to take away everything from us if yeah. we wouldn't do this insane, follow this insane behavior. It's cruel behavior to children, irresponsible. Yeah. Yeah. It's just an untold damage to their development. Yeah. So I, I wasn't looking for a fight here. 
And I didn't expect to do anything except when I kept being removed from ministry, I took it right on the chin immediately. I didn't argue with my superiors. I said, okay, tell me where to go. I'll go there. And I had like five months doing nothing, then eight months doing nothing between these appointments. Um, and then I was told I should read the Epistle and Gospel in the vernacular if I wanted to say a public mass. No way, never. Like at the altar, you mean? Yeah. Without, yeah not just, not just... without saying the Latin. Okay, I see. Yeah. Straight into the vernacular, wherever, facing the people or the altar, I don't know, but without saying the Latin. I, I absolutely refuse to do that. We have the missal with the rubrics. We know how it's done, and that's what I was ordained to do. You, it's like you can't come in after the contract is signed, if we call this a contract where you give yourself to God to be his priest, and this is how you're going to do it. No one can jump in later and say, oh, we're changing that. If they want, it has to be with your consent, as it was with Pius V, right? He said... Yep. He knows what he's doing. Um, now, I, I still would have been willing to have a lifetime of doing without public ministry if it was just for this, if it was just my superiors um, trying to navigate a way through this very difficult time that the whole world was unsure of itself because we're being uh, shaken about by Satanists, yeah. basically. Yeah. It's, it's difficult for the superiors. I get it. They don't want to lose the whole apostolate. They don't want to have bad yeah. relations with the cardinal or the bishop. Um, and it, it's just like I, I, there's incredible goods from solitary confinement. So I'm content to sit and study for five or 10 or 15 years and just offer private masses, which is the, the best thing that we do and pray the office. But then came Traditionus Custodes. And because of that, my next appointment was blocked. Because you, I, there's people think Maudsley, Father Maudsley is a bit of a loose cannon, right? Um, and so you can understand how superiors didn't want me assigned to them. It's difficult for the general house to find a place for me. There's one very good priest in Amsterdam. He said, oh, we'll, we'll take him. What a great charitable heart he has. Brave. Um, and then the bishop there, independently of that, said, oh, we're not accepting any new trinity priests. Because he wants to conform with TC. Um, and then I thought, okay, now the enemy is so deep within the church, they're attacking the very life of the church now. And it's, to go back to the Jewish question, I think there is a, a very much a connection with them thinking that Israel is the Messiah, seeking a one world order, and that the pandemic is part of this, although it's not, it's, it's not one-to-one, -one, it's not simple. And also the attacks on the traditional mass, which go back to the Novus Ordo, which go back to the Reformation, which go back to the Arianism and the Gnostic heresies and the New Deism we read of in the New Testament, and which go back to everything Jeremiah is writing about yeah. and Cain's attack on Abel. So this is, it's the same story. It's not something we can prove by modern surveillance because we have a recording of a few people who had a meeting and decided this is our plan. It's something you understand when you read history and the scriptures. So they, enemies of the cross, want above all to stop the traditional mass. And That's am right. I then supposed to sit back and say, well, there's nothing I can do about it? Well, I'm, I'm forced then to say, well, I want to address this, but I don't want to address it by saying that the Jews are the adversaries of mankind. Let's hurt them. Yeah. It's St. Paul calls them the adversaries of mankind. But he shows us he never lifted a finger against them. He right. was trying to kill the Christians. He was trying to destroy the Christians. 
He converted and never lifted a finger against the Jews. St. Stephen did the same. Jesus did the same. How many examples do we need? With this, the Reformation, the saints did the same, the martyrs. English martyrs went to the scaffold cheerfully praying for the conversion of their persecutors. St. Edmund Campion, St. Thomas More. This is our lesson, and this is the victory over the devil. He wants us to turn to injustice, to rage, to hate, to greed. So you know, this, the usury in the Middle Ages would cripple farmers and um, communities from the Jews taking their money. And after, that's why often the local community was would turn to a pogrom in which they wanted yeah. to burn the books. It's not that they wanted to steal the wealth back. They wanted to burn the books, which had all the ledgers and their debts in them. These debts were unjust. Right. Um, so, but you can see from any excess or anger or injustice that was done, we all suffer under that now because you have this false narrative that the church is anti-Semitic, which is complete BS. It's false. Yeah. The church is a Jewish being in that it's the body of Christ. He's Jewish, given birth yeah. to from the Virgin Mary, who's Jewish. All the first apostles, all the apostles are Jewish. The church's beginning is Jewish and her end will be Jewish. Um, but she's, she's Jewish and Gentiles. We're, we're both in there now. So it, it seems like a, a long shot. I, I no longer hope for the healing of the hierarchy with Francis and our, our bishops. It's, it's over with them. We have to be really realistic. It's over. They want to bless homosexual activity in the church sanctuaries, in liturgical books. It's already happening. The Germans are bragging about doing this. The Belgians have posted on their bishop's website a, a text which they claim is liturgical for this. It's over with these people. They've, and God, of course, by a work of God can rescue them. But if we're saying we have to work with them, negotiate with them, well, people can try that, but they're not being realistic. I think it's far more realistic to pray for the conversion of the Jews and hmm. who are behind both the worldly problems and the church problems. That, and when they convert, it will heal it. And to pray for their conversion, I don't just mean through your pious private prayers. I mean the Good Friday prayer for the conversion of the Jews, the old traditional one. It is perfect and it is powerful. And if we try to get that prayer back, it will bring us into conflict with any enemy standing in the way, including in the church. All those yeah. who try to stop that are not, they're not with the program. They might be of goodwill, very, it's very possible, but they need to understand that our life is in tradition. If we drop the ball, there's no hope for the future and everything in the past was futile. It's not, it's about a lot more than our generation. It's not a selfish thing because we find the traditional mass smells beautiful because of the incense and we like the sound of the bells and the look of the vestments. That's not it. This is like we said before, it's, it's about the cosmos. The whole cosmos is engaged. And the very effort to get the pre-55 liturgy, which requires a bit of study and sacrifice and understanding, that will make us into the Catholics we're supposed to be, who are fearless, who love God above all things, who value the saints, who know we're doing this even for our enemies. And, and then we would thereby restore the whole liturgy, which, as you know, is the beginning of having the right faith and the right moral life. So whether or not the Jews convert, that's in God's hands, right? We can't make it happen, but we can pray for it, which is our duty. 
And if we pray for it, it certainly will happen when God's, God's ready. If we let it go, then I think we're stuffed. We're going to fall to the groomers, basically, who we see that physically, sexually happening, but it's a spiritual thing behind it from the devil. Mm-hmm. What clerics do to altar boys is what the devil wants to do to all our souls. Right. We can't, we can't allow that. And that's not obedience. It's not obedience. It's not meekness and humility to, to submit oneself to that. Okay. That brings me to, I think, um, the last thing we'll talk about today. This is amazing. If you please come on again, by the way, because uh, I feel like we could, <laughs> we could, uh, we could both get ourselves canceled happily on YouTube. Um, but, um, so at the Catholic Identity Conference, uh, you did talk about resisting Pope Francis until it hurts. Mm-hmm. And um, I think we've spoken at length about the importance of resisting here to a degree. And you mentioned now that the hierarchy is basically a lost cause. And I tend to sympathize, if I'm being honest. But you did also do a video last year um, about the Society of St. Pius X and Marcel Lefebvre. One of the most beautiful and heartwarming, heartwarming things I've seen anyone say about uh, Lefebvre, and obviously everyone knows I'm I'm a Lefebvre partisan. I have a book coming out. I'm actually just waiting on my final blurb. So, so Father So and So, I'm waiting for my blurb. If you haven't finished it, please, please send it to me so I can put it on the back cover and get that thing out. Hopefully next week. And um, and it's in sorry, it's in defense of Marcel Lefebvre and the SSPX. It's called SSPX the Defense, so it's very on the nose what it's about. Um. But you said basically, you know, the analogy you gave, which I thought was so beautiful, it actually inspired me to write an essay for 1 Peter 5 about the same topic. That was a great was, essay. I enjoyed that as well. Oh, thank you. And it was about um, at the crucifixion, the whole hierarchy had left except for one bishop who stood there with Mary Magdalene and, and Blessed Mother. And so if we see the church going through her passion, which clearly she is, um, at least one of the, if, if there's one, I don't know, but there's a passion going on. And um, we, we saw one bishop, basically, or at least one, one man of a few, but the, the one who represented any resistance that any bishop could give was Marcel Lefebvre to what was happening. And you mentioned, um, for example, why you would not say the prayers or the uh, read, read the readings in the vernaculars. Because you said, that's not in the contract. That's not what I signed up for. That's essentially the argument Marcel Lefebvre gave is like, you can't tell me I can't say the same ordination or same prayers over my chalice as I said of my ordination. That's not what I was ordained to do. Can you speak to um, what, what caused you to sort of change your mind about Lefebvre and your understandings of obedience and things like that? Right. Um, if, I, I remember after giving that analogy about St. Peter fleeing and St. John staying, who I think in a way St. John, although he is an apostle and a bishop, he stands for the priesthood. And Archbishop right. Lefebvre was very much for the priests, right? Keep the priests yeah. um, existing. And he, he, achieved, right. he achieved that, by the way, for, for all of us. Um, and some gentlemen on the internet who are, I can't remember their names, but they, they like to attack the SSPX. They said that I have no understanding of the scriptures of or something because St. Peter <laughs> wasn't yet the Pope. Yeah. Because Peter wasn't the Pope. And I thought, oh, you poor men, do you not know that the author of the scriptures can anticipate the future? This is the whole point yes, of typology. Exactly. He can lay something into someone's life, even in the yeah. New Testament, which speaks of the future. It doesn't matter that Peter wasn't yet Pope. But in any case, 
the, the thing that to, there were two things that turned my mind around about the SSPX. One was previously I'd never really accepted the argument that we're in a state of emergency. I always right. thought, no, there's always a way through. Things are grim, but there's always a way through. But frankly, when I've been told in what I thought was the last, one of the last safe places in the church to keep tradition, that I have to start doing things which are against the rubrics um, and making a, a, the mass into a circus with various... All the COVID mandate yeah. stuff, yeah. yeah. Um, and then we see traditionalist custodians and this blatant attempt now to, where they've put Francis in that document, the goal is that we're all going to go to the Novus Ordo. It's just a That's matter right. of when. Well, this is an emergency. And the, the Archbishop Lefebvre just saw it coming decades before me and a lot of others. We have to admit he was right. Yeah. And when I was in Switzerland and for eight months, I'm saying mass pretty much on my own all the time, every day, very rare that people could come to my masses there. Um, I, I have to enter into the mass in a, in a deeper way to do that. Because I love it when the faithful are present, of course. I know that, that the mass of a priest alone is still the highest worth of anything on earth. But you can't help loving it when people are coming to that. In fact, one beautiful thing in the lockdowns is we're saying masses in tiny chapels in people's homes. People who were coming regularly said, and I have heard recently similar, They've never been so close to the altar. They've never yes. seen such things. And it touches people deeply. It changes their whole life. Mm -hmm. And and so I, 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 even though before I began seminary, I thought the mass is the greatest thing on the planet because you've read the theology books. And even though when I was ordained, I believed it more, it, it really has hit me in a whole new level, which I've tried to explain in that crucifixion of creation. And I, I, I failed, I think, to begin to say why the mass is so good. And Archbishop Lefebvre knew this. Yeah. He knew that if we don't keep the traditional mass, it's over. It's yeah. really over. He's done it for the whole church. And he took all the flack and accusations, all the injustices from Rome, which he took like a saint. And his work has been so fruitful. And I, I don't buy that the 12 founders of the fraternity and the seminarians came with them. I don't think they betrayed him. I think they see things differently with canon law and mm -hmm. whatever, and that they were of goodwill. And I think God can use that division even now for, to his providential game plan, where he does have people who are um, closer to the bishops and other who are under them, but more independent in some of their operations. So the bishops find it very hard to shut tradition down. It's not simply invite the fraternity in and that will destroy the SSPX. It doesn't work like that. Both places will grow. I think the priests who, I know fraternity priests preach hard against the SSPX in some places in the States. They've really stopped it. Look, the world's huge. There's 8 billion souls. You're not in competition with any Catholic priest. You're in competition with the devil who wants to take souls to hell. So preach right. against him and not against priests who are offering the traditional mass. Right. The Fed, it's amazing what he did. And um, I'm sorry that I wrote him off and spoke against the men. What's, what's changed me is meeting faithful who go to SSPX masses and then meeting SSPX priests and then reading his autobiography and reading his writings about they have unthroned him. Um, That's the magnum opus, they have uncrowned him. Is everyone, that is one of the greatest books I've ever read in my life. It is so rich. 
And, and there are problems with sexual abuse within the society. It's everywhere. And that needs to be exposed, prosecuted, dealt with like everywhere. But that can't be a, a bludgeon to try to destroy the good of the archbishop and the whole society and the prayers of the faithful there. Yeah, well said. It uh, it does astonish me now still to this day. You know, I just literally I'm finishing my final edit on this book. And there are plenty of examples in church history of bishops and priests disobeying superiors, even the Pope, um, in times of grave necessity. It's very rare. Uh, you know, when I say plenty, I say, you know, half a dozen. But there have been kind of half a dozen moments where something like that was necessary. And thankfully, it's extremely rare. Um, you know, uh, just regarding the consecrations very quickly, you know, uh, you've, you've probably referenced The Fundamentals of Catholic Dogma by Ludwig Ott. I mean, it's an exceptional book that's used, been used to form priests. It's very clear in, the, in, um, in that book that it wasn't the norm to have explicit papal approval for ordinations of bishops, consecrations of bishops until about a few hundred years ago. And it's just said as it's an afterthought. It's just, well, this is the way it was for a long time. Basically, the point is, is, you know, clearly, obviously, we have the laws of the church and we have to make every attempt to follow those positive laws. Um, but the highest law is the salvation of souls. And as we've said, and as you've said so rightly in this show together, the, the preservation of the traditional mass is it's it's not just about the smells and smells and bells are important because we are as we're incarnational we have to smell things we have to taste things that's not just a throwaway nonetheless the traditional mass is the sustenance of the of creation yeah and and we cannot throw that thing away and it's worth as you said resisting until it hurts yeah. it's worth being um calumniated and i'll say one last thing here about lefebvre i was talking to some friends earlier in a group chat and um my friend mentioned, uh, I can't remember where it was, but there's something came up and he said, you know, pretty much everyone who hate each other somehow all come together and hate Lefebvre. And he said, that's almost Christ-like. And I said, yeah, you know, right. the same people that will never sit in the same bar together will, 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 will share, a, share a cup and cheers their drinks and hatred of Lefebvre. It's very strange. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay, Father, we've talked for almost two hours. We could talk for five more, but I know it's late where you are. My children are about to come home. My poor wife is going to need some help. And um, real quick, where can people find your uh, work so that they can support you? Um, there's either through the YouTube channel, Scripture and Tradition, Father JM, which links to all those books. And it's really by reading the books, getting this idea about the new, the Old Testament and the New. That's what I'm trying to put out there. And that's why some people say to me, why don't I join this society or that institute or this fraternity? The things I'm going to be saying in a couple of months no society will want me to be <laughs> right um and that's what i mean about resisting till it hurts i want to be in a parish i want to be doing all that i've had i don't have faculties i, I don't have canonical mission there's different arguments for different groups but I, yes. I i don't have it i'm not trying to do those things there's a subtle difference here that people don't get i've had things taken away from me i'm not attempting to grab them or replace them i think okay i'll say the mass in office I'll write some books and study the scriptures and pray for the conversion of the Jews. Who, who can speak against that? That's my plan. And I want to try and encourage other people to pray for the conversion of the Jews and read the books to understand why and how and get, get, to get to the traditional mass. Um, and I would love honest feedback on the books. If people read Adam's Deep Sleep or the Virgin Mary's Crushing the Antichrist's Head and they don't see what I'm saying, they don't agree this is in the Old Testament. I mean, Catholics who 
read the book with goodwill and don't say, tell me, tell me where I'm failing. Maybe I need to go back with my tail between my legs and say, I'm sorry, I'm a lunatic. I take all these books down and I'll, well, I'm not going to wear a mask, but um, <laughs> and I'm not going to say the Novus Ordo ever. Um, yeah. But th this, this is the plan. And when the fourth book comes out, we, we'll, we will see. Which uh, ones? What's the fourth book called? If, if you believe Moses. Okay. That's yeah, about the version of the Jews promised in the Torah. In fact, okay. the whole Bible. Wow. I can't wait. Okay. Well, Father, um, it's the octave of Easter, so we didn't, I didn't even say this, but happy Easter. Yeah. And um, we'll speak soon, and I'm sure you'll be back on. This is going to be a, a hit with the, the viewers of the show, I can, I can imagine. This, this episode is going to turn into seven or eight 15-minute segments that I'll put out as other episodes because there's just so much depth that we talked about here. And um, wonderful. Okay, ladies and gentlemen, uh, thank you to Father Maudsley, and this has been the Kennedy Report, and until next time, God bless.